Father God, we thank you so much for who you are, for the glorious, amazing, wonderful God that you are. And Lord, we've been looking at aspects of your character and Lord, that stretched our brains. Thank you that you, you are so infinite in so many aspects and they're all good, they're all good aspects. And Father, as we finish that series today, we pray for your anointing. Lord, I'm very mindful that to tackle the subject I'm doing today in one session is, is bordering on folly, but uh, Lord, would you anoint, would you anoint the words, anoint our minds, keep us cool enough that we're not too hot, that we can pay attention to what you're saying. Feed us, edify us, and Lord, may we worship you more because of the magnificent God that you are. We ask it in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I think most of you know that over recent weeks, I've felt I needed to add one further session to the series I've been doing on the character of God. And I want to look at the Trinity. Uh, to be strictly accurate, uh, this study is really on part of the nature of God rather than his character. Um, but I think if we only look at his attributes, then we'll still have an incomplete understanding of God. Uh, and I think it's crucial that we do grasp his nature as the triune God that we worship. And although uh, we've, we're going to do a lot of work this morning, the doctrine of the Trinity is no mere academic doctrine. It's about God, the one who made the universe and whose image we bear and the one we worship. And to understand the Trinity or the fact of the Trinity has huge bearings on who we are, on whose we are and, and how we are to live. And I believe that the Trinity is an important subject that is rarely taught in the church at large, at least beyond the very basics. And yet it's one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith. When St. Thomas, when, when Thomas Becket was Archbishop of Canterbury centuries ago, I think it was the 12th century, he stipulated that one Sunday every year should be devoted to the Trinity because he was horrified at how little it was understood. I'm not sure a lot has changed over the sort of eight or 900 years since then. But before I start, I probably feel I should apologize for failing, at least in some measure, in teaching on this, because I don't think we can fully grasp the depth and the wonder of our tri triune God this side of heaven. So I don't think I can give justice to the subject, but I'll give it a go. But then why should we expect that the infinite, eternal God um, should be easily grasped by our minds. Our minds are finite. They're, they're, they're pretty new in comparison with the eternality of God. Our minds are limited. They're affected by our moods, by our hormones, by our digestion and so on. And when we consider how complex and yet beautiful the creation is, even in its fallen state, surely it's not surprising to find that our, its creator is deeply complex to our fallen minds. But uh, my prayer is that by the end of this talk you will have a better understanding of God and his triune nature. So put your seatbelts on, here we go. 
The Bible teaches that God is three persons in one essence, which we call the Trinity. We worship one God, but he is three in personality. And the early church debated the whole nature of God, and it's been attacked over many centuries. The Athanasian Creed, which is one of the creeds that the, uh, the early-ish church established, uh, it makes a fairly succinct definition when it says that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. Um, I think it's a lovely that. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. If you want that in simple terms, it's saying that God is one, but in three persons. He is three, but in a single unity. And we mustn't confuse the three persons, nor seek to divide the oneness of God. And although I will use the word person in relation to the Trinity, I'm, I'm not even sure that that is fully there. I think it's perhaps a slightly imperfect expression of the truth, since the term person denotes a separate rational and moral individual but in the being of God there are not three individuals but three personal self-distinctions self within the one divine essence. If that's stretching your brain it should um, because we have an amazing God but we have three personal self-distinctions within the one divine essence and these persons are equal, they have the same attributes as we've seen throughout this course, and they are equally worthy of our adoration, our worship, and our faith. Another definition could be God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. And critics of the Trinity argue that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. Uh, there are various other things that are taught that we believe that are not, the actual words aren't there. But uh, whilst that is true to as far as it goes, that we don't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but we will see that the concept and the truth of the Trinity most definitely are found um, in the Bible. Many preachers and teachers have tried to give an analogy to explain the Trinity. Um, one of the most common is water, which is an, a thing in itself, but it, which is found in three forms. It could be ice, liquid and steam. Now that may be helpful in enabling us to grasp something of the, conflict, the concept. But when we're speaking of the Almighty God, it falls far short. If you're going to look at an analogy, uh, my favourite one as a helpful guide is to consider light, which is one, but it has three elements. We could liken one aspect uh, is the father, is, which is actinic light, and it's that part of light which is invisible and not felt. We could think of the sun as the luminiferous part. It's that part of light which is both seen and felt, because Jesus, of course, is the revealed member of the Trinity, and of course he is the light of the world. And then thirdly, we could look at the spirit, um, the, the, the calorific part of light, which is that part of the light which is not seen, but is felt. And I think that, that sort of gives us a flavour of the, the role of the, 
three members of the Trinity, uh, all in one, but as, as light. And of course, as I say, Jesus is the light of the world. But again, it's merely an analogy. It still falls short of describing our God in his fullness. So to understand it, our source, as always, must be the Bible. And at the risk of stating the obvious, given the eternal divine nature of the whole Godhead, who has graciously revealed the truth about itself, it would be surprising, wouldn't it, if we didn't find the scriptures uh, confirming the three persons of the Trinity. Uh, and somewhat unsurprisingly, we don't have to go far in the Bible to come across the concept of the Trinity. In fact, we find it in the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, some of you will know that the Hebrew word for God there is Elohim, which is a plural noun. So right at the first occurrence of God in the Bible, we have God in plurality. Um, and he's there making the universe. And we know from various scriptures that each member of the Trinity was involved in creation. Um, now, at this point, some will come along and say, well, it's all very well to say that God is plural, but the word Elohim is used elsewhere of many gods. We could take as an example the Ten Commandments, where in Exodus 20, verse 3, we have the commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That's talking about false gods. It's the same word, Elohim. Uh, but on the, so on the one hand, we have the same word for the one true God, as we find for the plural pagan, idolatrous gods. But whenever the word is used of the true God, it's always translated in the singular. But when it's used of the false gods, it's always translated in the plural. We have another example of the plurality of God in, in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And we can see uh, a, clear, a clear evidence of plurality in the Godhead here. We have let us make in our image, our likeness. It, it suggests more than a singular personality. Uh, but also um, we need to note that the verb make is in the singular. Now normally when a plural noun in Hebrew is given, it, it should have a plural verb form. We don't get it so much in English, but we do sometimes. Uh, but when it comes to the use of Elohim in relation to God, then normally is a singular verb form. And that shows the oneness of God alongside the plurality of his personality. Now, there are some exceptions to that, to that singular verb form, but there's usually a good reason for it. In Psalm 45, uh, 6 and 7, we find the word Elohim used of two personalities, both of whom are God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And here we have God being addressed, but God anointing him. So we have the Father and the Son in the same passage. 
and that's why we have the plurality in the in the Hebrew verb form there. Another name for God that we find in the Old Testament is Jehovah, uh, which is the English translate, translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, or to more, more properly, it's the, what's we have transliterated from the Hebrew letters YHVH. And this is God's personal name, Jehovah or Yahweh. We find that used in Genesis 19, verse 24. Then the Lord rained brimstone, brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And here we have uh, God, Jehovah, as one party raining down fire and brimstone. Uh, Jehovah is raining, uh, is sending fire from heaven, but, but we know that when this occurred, there's one Jehovah in the person of the Son of God talking to Abraham on earth, while the other was in heaven raining down fire. We have another example of Jehovah also uh, being plural in Genesis 3.22, that the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. So we have again the plurality within the Godhead. We even have examples of God having a son in the Old Testament. Psalm 2 verse 7, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It looks ahead to, to Jesus as God's son being on earth. But it's not saying that the eternal Son of God was at some point created in eternity past. But it's saying, or looking forward to a point in history, when God's Son, who has always existed, took on humanity. Another example is Psalm 30, verse 4. Who has ascended into heaven, or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if you know? And this verse is clearly talking about God. But at the end of it, we see that God there has a son. And then we have many instances when uh, the, the son of God appears in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. We've seen that in other times recently, and it's distinct from God the Father, uh, but still as God. Um, we know from John 1.18 that uh, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And we know that Jesus is the revealed member of the Trinity, the one who mankind has seen, whereas the Holy Spirit obviously being spirit is not visible and God is spirit and far too glorious throughout his fallen eyes to look upon. We could see an example of one of these, uh, these appearances of, this, of God the Son in Judges uh, 2, 1 to 2. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? And here we have Jesus as the son 
identifying himself with the actions and the statements from the father. The two are coming in the same, same passage. And then we have the Holy Spirit, also found, found in the New Testament. And uh, we have him not quite as early as the, the plurality of the Godhead, but we get it in Genesis 1 verse 2. So it's second verse, um, where we read, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We know that all three members of the Godhead were involved in creation. It was clearly a distinctively divine act. It was not a random bang that would have just brought forth chaos. But uh, the Holy Spirit was there as a member of the Godhead involved in creation. Uh, Psalm 139 verse 7 tells us, uh, talking of the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit, where can I go from your spirit? Well, where can I flee from your presence? That must mean he's God, because only God is omnipresent. And uh, we, we see the Holy Spirit as distinct from God, uh, as the Father, God the Father, in Isaiah 63, verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. So we see how God's spirit was grieved there. All the quotes we've seen so far have been in the Old Testament, apart from that one in one, uh, John chapter 1. And from the, the Old Testament passages, we have a clear picture of the plurality of God. Even before the Son of God came to earth in the form of Jesus. In the New Testament, we have plenty of evidence of the three persons of the Trinity. One clear example is at Jesus' baptism, Matthew 3, 16 and 17. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus is present on earth here the Father spoke from heaven, and the Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus in the form of a dove. But note more than their mere presence. Uh, the three members of the Godhead glorify each other. The Father declares his love and pleasure in the Son. The Holy Spirit marks Jesus as the one on whom the Father's favour rests. And Jesus the Son willingly accepts the Father's plan and ministry for his life on earth. There's that lovely oneness in purpose and glorifying of each other. Then we find the Great Commission uh, also refers to the Trinity, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Anyone who's been in a denominational church would have prayed uh, a prayer at the end of many meetings, uh, the grace, many times, but it's taken from the Bible, 2 Corinthians 13 verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion or fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's a clear statement of the Trinity because we have all three members of the Godhead mentioned here. 
Now, many people um, seem to regard the Holy Spirit as a divine but impersonal force, um, rather than an integral part of the Godhead. And that can't be right. If, if the Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead, he, he is a personality. And some of these people sadly refer, re, um, refer to the Holy Spirit as it, rather than he. And that can't be squared with the Bible. Because we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4.30. A force doesn't have feelings that can be grieved. And a natural force, or rather a neutral force, would not produce the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, which are all characteristics of personality. The Holy Spirit is a personality, a member of the Godhead, just as much as the Father and the Son. And the fact that the Holy Spirit works so closely with the Father and the Son must mean that he has personality, because he is our comforter, he is our sanctifier, our counsellor, and so on, we could, we could carry on. Another point that's often missed is that, uh, at the risk of stating the obvious, is that whilst the Bible repeatedly shows the plurality and the oneness of the Godhead, the Bible teaches that there are only three members of the Godhead. Nowhere in Scripture do we find any suggestion or hint that there's a fourth or a fifth or whatever member of the Godhead. It's three. And it's, it's, it's a clear three. And each of the three persons of the Trinity has a clear purpose, as well as a total unity in essence and a unity in their purpose. Only the three members of the Godhead of the Trinity have the attributes of God. And there's a beautiful completeness in the Godhead. We don't need any more other members tacked on. We have three in one, one in three. And we have a glimpse of their function in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 2, where Peter is addressing his readers as elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And here we see the Father responsible for foreknowledge, although both the Son and the Holy Spirit also have that. The Son is responsible for sprinkling or shedding of his blood for the sins of the world. And the Holy Spirit is responsible for sanctification. And that obviously occurs as we are born again, when we are positionally sanctified, but also the Holy Spirit works in us as we allow him to make us more like Christ. And it's so beautiful that the whole Godhead is involved in our salvation and in our discipleship. So we've seen the plurality of the Godhead, but we must also look at the oneness of God. We've seen the use of singular verbs with plural nouns. Uh, we saw Genesis 1:26, but let's look at it just once more, um, where it says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. In that verse, man is made in God's image and likeness. There's a conversation there in the Godhead, but it's a single likeness and a single image. In Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, we have the statement recited by the Jews daily, at least if not more than once daily. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now the Jews use that as a verse against the Trinity, but what they miss is that it literally reads, 
Jehovah our gods is one. <laughs> the focus is on the one, but it supports plurality within the Godhead. And the Hebrew word for one there is echad, and it's, it speaks of compound unity. Um, we, we can see that uh, in Genesis 1 verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. And the word for first is one. So we have the, the evening and the morning combined in one day, or day one. We can also see it in Genesis 2:24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Um, there's still two personalities, husband and wife, but in God's sight they are one flesh. Just as the three members of the Godhead have separate personalities, but are one God. There's a separate Hebrew word that Moses could have used that means one and one only. But the Holy Spirit didn't lead him to use that in Deuteronomy 6.4 to denote the one, the one singular God. He chose to use the word for one, which is a compound word. Um, just so, it, it, again, gives us a clue that there is plurality within the oneness of God. And... I think it's worth noting that in the Trinity, we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are so united that they are utterly one, always in perfect agreement, and yet never cease to be themselves. They never sort of dissolve into a mixture of divinity that sort of is a mishmash of divinity. They are always three within the oneness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And their oneness is no threat to their freeness, nor is their intimacy a threat to their individuality. So as we become more like Christ, we don't lose our individuality, but we lose our selfishness and all that relates to the sinful side of self. We don't lose ourselves in him, well, rather we find and complete ourselves in God as we move on with him. Now, most attacks on the, Trinity, on the Trinity are aimed at Jesus as the Son of God. And he's described as the Word in John chapter 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Jesus here is the word. Uh, I know that Jehovah's Witnesses attack this passage, but there is a rule in Greek that, that means he is the one. Uh, so I won't go into that in detail now, but, but we can know that Jesus is the word. He is the son of God, not a son of God. And I want to review something I mentioned when I first started, when we first joined Calvary Chapel Maidstone, when it first started up, I started going through the book of the Gospel of John. And uh, in my first sermon in the Gospel of John, I, I made some comments, which I want to review now. I think it's worth it just to show the understanding of the Jewish frame of mind when 
that John was addressing when he wrote his gospel. Um, the rabbis taught things about the word which we have here. Um, they didn't use the Greek word logos when they taught, they used the Aramaic equivalent, which is memra. And they taught six theological truths about this word memra that are helpful. They taught the memra was sometimes distinct from God and sometimes the same as God. Again, we can see that in Trinity. Jesus is sometimes distinct from God uh, in, in terms of personhood, but he's the same as God. Then they taught the memra was the agent of creation, which of course John teaches that in verse 3, when he says that through him, the word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So the memra was present and active at the beginning. And John connected what was known and taught about the memra with the Greek word logos that he wrote about. There's an there's a, in, intertwining of what the rabbis understood and what John is teaching here. Third, the memra was also the agent of salvation. And of course, hallelujah, isn't Jesus the agent of salvation? And that flowed out of the teaching of the Old Testament. And of course, John adds to it by associating Jesus as the one in whom there is salvation all the way through his gospel. And we find that all the way through the New Testament as a whole. Fourth, the rabbis taught that the memra is the means by which God became visible. And in verse 14 of John chapter 1, we read that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus is the visible member of the Trinity, as I've said. It was also taught that the memra was the means by which God signed his covenants. And Jesus is the evidence for us of the covenant that God has. And six, it was taught that the memory was the agent of revelation. In other words, whenever God chose to reveal himself, it was by means of this memory, this word. And God has revealed so much about himself through his living word, Jesus Christ. I think that just is helpful in understanding that the, the, the framework of thinking of the Jewish mind at the time of John writing, which is, of course, when Jesus was around. And it was just packed with meaning. So when John wrote what he did, it was just, if you like, supercharged for them to understand. And of course, it just points beautifully to Jesus' deity as a member of the Trinity. Uh, we have many indications of the plurality of the Godhead. But throughout scripture, God still reiterates time and again that he is the only true God and that he is one. All other so-called gods are false and do not comply with scripture. And I think that the fact we have one God is a tremendous reassurance for us because we can know from that that he is the ultimate standard. He is the one who is sovereign over the universe. He is the one who cares and loves, for us, loves us so deeply that he sent his son to die for us. If we had options in terms of gods, we'd never know which one was right and which one was able to save us and keep us. I think it's also marvellous that our God is one in three persons, so he can righteously and justly meet all of our needs without compromising his holy nature. And the Trinity is essential to our faith. 
because without the threefold personality of God, we'd have no saviour. If God the Father couldn't send his son to earth to take our place, our sins would still remain. If God in threefold form did not exist, then the members of the Godhead would not have had would not have love or fellowship in the way that they do. And because they are Trinity, they have known love for eternity and they can show it to mankind. Indeed, I would say it's God's desire for fellowship, prompted by his love, that caused him to make humans to have fellowship with. That's not to say that God needed mankind or that he was lonely, but his love is such that our creation and our praise bring glory to him. And if Jesus were not fully God, as well as fully man, he could not have represented both man and God to bridge the gap between God and mankind. Each member of the Trinity is fully God and has a complete unity in love, purpose and essence within the Godhead. We've seen in this series of talks how God is wise, he's eternally existent, he's unchanging and so much more. And we can therefore conclude that it is entirely right and proper for God to exist as a Trinity because he can't be other than who, who, who he is. He's always been a Trinity, always will be, and we should be grateful to him that this is the case. And the vital importance of the Trinity is such that if Jesus is merely a created being, how could he truly represent both God and man? How could we then trust him completely? No mere human could live a perfect life with an untainted birth so that he could take the full wrath of God for the sins of man. But equally, Jesus had to be man so that as our representative, he could legitimately die for ourselves as well as representing God. But Jesus also accepted worship. He still does, he will do forever. But if he's not God, then that would be blasphemous. No merely created being could be our saviour, such that God's holy character is satisfied. And if God had not existed from eternity past, and therefore enjoyed endless and timeless unity and fellowship within the Godhead, how could we know that God is interested in a living and loving relationship with him as saved human beings as we are? The glory and the wisdom of God is seen in the Trinity and our salvation is possible and it's secure because of it. One thing that struck me as I've been pondering and considering the Trinity is that it's a staggering privilege to have Almighty God so intimately involved in human history and in what goes on here on earth. Not only did God create the whole universe, but he focused his attention on Earth. And we can trace his involvement with this planet all through Scripture, with the goal of him having a people to fellowship with and to call his own. The fact that he made everything good, that he chose Israel to be an example to the nations, but also to give so much teaching regarding his purposes, I think is amazing. And then the Son of God appears so many times 
through the Old Testament, culminating in his incarnation and his life and death on earth to show his commitment to mankind for salvation. The commitment of God is so amazing. And then the fact that he sent his Holy Spirit to indwell believers in the church is a stunning evidence of his master plan of divine involvement in his people. He didn't have to, but he chose to, and that's amazing. And add to that, of course, Jesus is returning uh, to the earth to reign in power over this earth for a thousand years. Surely that underscores God's commitment to his creation. It's so clear that God didn't merely create the universe, including earth, and then leave it to carry on regardless. I think it also shows there cannot be life on other planets because Jesus couldn't appear there to die again, which would inevitably be necessary if there was life there. The whole scriptures show that God is involved with planet Earth, and he wants to be intimately involved with men and women, and that takes the Trinity to do that in a way that satisfies God's nature. And this fact should cause us to love and worship him even more than we have before. God in Trinity is fullness of life, living in eternal relationship and in never ceasing fellowship. That's the awfulness of when Jesus was separated from his Father and the Holy Spirit on the cross, thankfully to be reunited again once he had died. God has been eternally relational and that's what he wants to share with us. There's so much more that I could say about the Trinity um, it's, it's impossible to deal with it adequately in one talk, but I hope that what we've covered today has brought some light on the subject, and I hope it's also whetted your appetites to study the beautifully rich nature of God further and to love him more. And my prayer that this series on the character of God and now this, this last one on the Trinity have just expanded your understanding of who our God is, and equally that we will fall down and worship him because he is so amazingly magnificent. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again so much for who you are. Thank you that you are Trinity, three in one, one in three. That you are three persons, but one God. Lord, help us with our finite minds to understand it. We pray for your Holy Spirit to reveal these things and just add the, the meat on the bone in our in understanding. And Lord, may it lead us to worship you afresh for who you are. Amazing God. Hallelujah. Amen.